and hello there from the IBHS studios here in Richburg, South Carolina. I'm going to be your host for today, Sarah Dillingham, and welcome to the IBHS Disaster Discussions podcast. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. We're going to have another great discussion here, and we're going to be keeping our focus on wildfire. Uh, if you missed last month's episode, we focused on the Lahaina wildfires that devastated that community on the island of Maui. Um, we're going to be monitoring that uh, here at the lab over the next uh, couple of months, really, as this uh, event kind of transpires. But today we're going to be talking in, uh, to another guest who's also heavily involved in the wildfire space. Uh, and right now, I just want to send a warm welcome to Yana Valakovic. She is joining us um, today. So, Yana, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation. Sure. Well, you were a good friend of ours here uh, at IBHS. Uh, I was able to meet you in person just last year uh, as you came to visit with our researchers and do some presentations of your own there, sharing some of your work. And uh, I know that you've, as we'll reference some of that work today, uh, you have been involved uh, with some of our researchers in the past, Steve Quarles, uh, who the, his name will come up a couple times. So uh, it's really nice to be able to have our friends join us on the podcast and, and share the message of, of mitigation and resilience. And um, so, yeah, with that, without any further ado, We'll just kind of get right into it. Um, so, Yana, as I learned a little bit about you here uh, when, when you came here, uh, really quick, I want to ask, uh, what was that visit like for you? That was the first time that you've been to the lab, wasn't it? Yeah, well, you know, to be honest, it was a real honor. I mean, I've been following your work at IBHS for you know, several years and to finally have the opportunity to, to see the size and scale of the lab. And I happened to be uh, in, in South Carolina on one of the days that uh, you all were conducting one of the experiments related to the question about separation of structures to structures and what was the impact of, mm -hmm. of uh, an ignited shed and and the the you know radiant heat that gave off from that that shed onto a adjacent building and so it was real fun just to to get to see how that works in action and mm -hmm. get to feel the the cold morning. Um, uh, gusts, you know, from the wind turbine, which were substantially yeah. colder than I was anticipating, to be honest. I think I was there about actually almost a year to, to date, really, when I think about it. Um, and so it was just it was just really fun to to, to get to see that in action and, um, you know, watch the countdown of the experiment and and, you know, mm -hmm. see the whole team that that puts a, an, an event on and and, you know, helps give us really relevant information which I often use in my outreach and extension work as an extension agent um, to communicate to the general public about the, the challenges of the day. So, you know, to have my hand in it, at least for one day, was a, was a great privilege. Yeah, and that was great. And, and you know, you're you're bringing back memories. I know we have our uh, our another phase of our structure separation testing going on. It's now wind driven building to building fire spread is what we're uh, looking at now because we're kind of seeing how that wind and fire impact or interact with the built environment. So yeah, as you said, we were doing some of that testing last summer and fall, and it, we did see it. Noting on, that you're talking about how cold the fans are, I'm not a person who likes cold very much. So in the summer, it's great when you've got those fans blowing and get a little bit of that breeze. But when it's winter time and the fans are turned on, it can be quite frigid and you've got a layer up. So uh, <laughs> I, I can definitely relate to that. So, so yeah, that's bringing back some memories for me. But yeah, we're going to be continuing that testing. We've already had a couple more burns um, earlier this summer. Uh, we're going to be picking those up again uh, into the fall and then a the whole nother phase kicks off next year's so stay tuned to that. I'm sure we'll have uh, our researchers talking about that at some point there. So as you mentioned, um, you're doing a lot of work out in the field and I kind of want to um, 
label off a little bit about your background, but I also want to hear from you and kind of like how you came into these roles and how you kind of got involved to what you're doing. So you're currently at the University of California working cooperative extension forest advisor. Um, you have a master's of science in forest science from Oregon State University, and you're co-lead of the Northern California region of the California Science, excuse me, Fire Science Consortium, and you're a steering committee member of the Northern California Prescribed Fire Council. So um, doing some cool stuff, Yana. So um, I'm curious, like, as, meteor as a meteorologist, you know, if you ask meteorologists, like, how'd you get into the business? And it's usually going to be some weather event that, that kicked off our interests. And then we just knew from the start that we were going to do meteorology at that point. But I'm curious for you, um, what was it that really got you involved in this field? Was there a, sort of a spark like that? Yeah, um, well, it's a, it's not a simple story, actually, but uh, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, I was I was raised uh, off the grid. I'm going to I'm going to really credit that as part of who I am and how I think about the issues that we work on, which meant that I you know had a very hands on application to um, maintaining buildings, maintaining water systems, dealing with electricity systems. We had solar. And so I've always had my hands, you know, in the ground, so to speak, or, you know, in the wood, so to speak. And so that um, influenced me quite a bit. I probably should have become an architect. Uh, that probably <laughs> would have been a better, <clears throat> a better pathway for yeah. me. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a nerdy scientist. I love to think about how mm -hmm. ecosystems work and how pattern and process come together. And, um, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I do a lot of career counseling, and I can tell you that no one enters college with a career trajectory figured out for the majority of the time. You know, we mm -hmm. often just follow our nose and, and end up in random places. So um, I went away to college um, and I happened to live in Oakland uh, during during a, a break that I took and I was um, there during the Oakland Hills fire in 1991. Um, um, so that is a a, somewhat of a game changing event. Um, my dad also started a wildfire accidentally with using a weed whacker <laughs> with a metal blade. Uh -oh. um, so th those were two kind of, you know, I mean, <laughs> we could shine a light on both of those events. So I experienced wildfire yeah. and and then I experienced very destructive, you know, kind of urban wildfire. And um, given that background and that sort of interest in design and interest in, in systems, you know, I, I was a forester by training and I and I found myself in a very lucky place in that um, I'm a nerdy scientist, but I like people a lot. And I, I managed yeah. to land a job as an extension agent, which really is in that you know, you've got your feet in many worlds. You're you're working in the research application side, but you're trying to solve relevant problems for the communities that you serve. So in my system, I'm I'm based in a kind of a geographic area where I you know I serve a really diverse clientele of scientists and managers and community members and policymakers and um, and in in extension we have the ability to to evolve our career and and take on different topical areas. So you know I've had many chapters of my career. Um, and then we often, you know, try and extend information uh, around new ideas, things that are important mm -hmm. things that we should track. And so we were fortunate um, at the time when I started Extension that Dr. Steve Quarles, who later became one of your primary scientists, um, yeah. worked for Extension and, and he was working in the wildfire space. And so, um, you know, I, he, he came up to the communities that I worked with and we did some great things. Like we actually did experiments in the parking lot where we could um, construct different wall assembly units and ignite them in the parking lot and like do things yeah. that are you know pretty complicated to pull off. We're we still doing that now. <laughs> right. But we struggled to get a, an audience. Um, yeah. People were really in, you know, the early 2000s kind of 
um, not so interested in, in at least the communities that I worked in, in this wildfire issue and, and in the built environment issue. Even though Steve was working directly and trying to uh, develop new code and develop a new system based on the experience of the Oakland Hills fire in 1991. Mm -hmm. So that really changed how California thought about wildfire and, and that, that, that became um, really the catalyst for the Chapter 7A building code for um, that's specific to the to the exterior performance of the building respective to wildfire. So yeah, and I'm I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, uh, anyway, so I I started working with Steve and and we wrote a couple of publications together and and then he retired. He retired from yeah. Ascension and and went to work for you all and continued the work. And so I would, <laughs> you know I would keep calling Steve and they'd be like, well, what are you learning? What's new? What's what's yeah. happening? And so I kept trying to keep the the thoughts alive. Mm -hmm. um, but the main game-changing event for me was really the Tubbs fire of, of 2017 and the mm -hmm. whole North Bay complex fires, which hit from Mendocino County through Sonoma County into Napa. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, we, I think we were all just captivated by the, the enormity of the, of the issue. And uh, I remember looking at the filming that was coming through the media and what did I see? What I saw was that there were green trees throughout a landscape and there were lost homes. And it really brought home this idea that our homes are the most combustible part of the landscape. And I thought, I gotta get there. I gotta figure out how to get some drone footage. I need some of that footage for, for my own work. And um, I was able to work with our UC teams. We got drones on the ground. Um, we got behind you know, the, the, the lines and, and got in and, and so that was the first time I you know, tried to pull off a post-fire investigation on my own and um, uh, brought a couple other folks along with me. And that just launched us deep into the wildfire space. And that's where I've been really ever since. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great story. And, you know, you brought up a point about the, the Oakland Hills fire, you know, and that that was something that really kind of changed people's perception across the state of California about wildfire. Um, it wasn't that. I don't think the state acted like we have like wildfires are not a threat at all. But when you see something like that happen and, and to your point also about the Tubbs fire, how it was really captivating, how um, I believe you said that the structure was the most combustible thing in the landscape. Like, how do we, how do we determine that? And, you know, here at IBHS, we're still doing those kinds of damage surveys because even though we can do great research here at the lab and, and repeat that and do that with full scale structures, you know, it's, it is challenging to try and mimic uh, what a real fire, um, how that unfolds and how that evolves in a community. And so being able to get those boots on the ground and to see those um, those elements up close and trying to figure out exactly what was the evolution, what was the pathway for fire through those mm -hmm. communities, um, it can really be impactful. So um, as you kind of set that up there with the Oakland fire in the state um, of California, you know, we've seen the issues of wildfires become really, I mean, California is the epicenter of wildfires, right? It kind of used to be earthquakes. We had those, some of those major earthquakes in the 1990s, and then we've kind of shifted now to where fire um, is one of the biggest things that we're worried about. And across the state of California, you know, we've seen, uh, I believe, around 10 to 20 of the largest wildfires in just the last 10 years or so uh, impacting the state. A couple of those we're going to talk about today, and the Tubbs fire is certainly one of those. Um, but we're really kind of in an existential crisis, we feel like, across the state where um, wildfire is in a lot of our communities. It's something that we're living with wildfire now. And it seems like we've had to learn really fast about how to try and make a meaningful change now. Um, and so with that, I kind of want to see a little bit um, 
I'm curious what your view is on kind of the climate impacts of this, because we know with climate change, we've got this warmer environment that's going to make evaporation uh, of soil moisture and, and fuel moisture that much more um that much more rapid, essentially, so where we can have this these uh, times of heat and drought develop. How have you been seeing that uh, develop across the landscape, and how it relates to, to fires that you've covered? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. And if I if I could back up for just a second, one of the thing, mm-hmm. things that I think was so significant about the Tubbs fire is that it put another fire back in Northern California. And until the Oakland mm-hmm. Hills fire, most of our our wildland fires that it had fairly substantial impact to human communities have been in Southern California and they'd been in the mm-hmm. shrub and chaparral systems. And so, you know, you can have a, a, a perception that that's a problem of somewhere else as opposed to a problem of where you are. And, you know, both Oakland and then the Tubbs fire. And then, you know, what sequences right after that is the car fire in Redding in, in 2018, you get the campfire mm-hmm. later that year in 2018. And then, you know, all bets are off at that point where I think we, as you know, residents of California really have begun to recognize that, oh, it can happen just about everywhere. And maybe there really isn't a safe zone within, within the landscape. So, you know, coming back to your question around climate and how does climate and, and the, you know, are we in an anomalous period? Are we in a new normal or, you know, what, what do we call this? I mean, I think that the real issue is that we've gone through some pretty historic droughts uh, during this time period. Um, But we're also seeing warmer nighttime temperatures, which means that you don't get moisture recovery at night. Um, The car fire, which is, um, you know, for those of you who don't follow the names of all these fires, is probably best known because it hit the communities of Redding and it had that um, massive fire tornado associated with it. Yes. And, you know, I I keep thinking about that in like King Kong, like, you know, okay, if you've got a fire tornado, you clearly need King Kong to try and come in and like (laughs) save us from, you know, save us from these great calamities. But what was happening in in the car fire was that really we weren't getting any nighttime humidity recovery, nighttime temperatures Mm -hmm. were, were hotter. And so everything was just exceptionally cured. We see that again in the lightning series um, that hit in 2020 that came up through Santa Cruz County, up up through the South Bay and into um, kind of the North Bay. And that kicks off, including the August fire, which becomes California's largest fire on record, which is the million acre fire. Um, That those lightning events happen right on top of an extreme drying, hot Mm -hmm. uh, time period. So, you know, we have exceptional exceptionally dry conditions. We have low, you know, moisture content in plants overall. Um, So those are fueling those specific events. But then we're also seeing kind of expansion of the fire season into what we used to call the shoulder seasons, like it's fires are occurring earlier in the spring, like the coastal fire in 2022, I believe it is. Uh, And then, you know, later into the fall, you get the Thomas fire. Um, you know, so there's not a sense of what the true fire season is anymore. Um, and we right. can be in condition to burn in many locations in the state in times when, you know, maybe that's not the the, the frame of normal uh, for us. So, you know, there's a lot of interaction that's happening between, you know, our overall weather conditions, the amount of available soil moisture, the, you know, the plant moisture availability, and, you know, concurrently kind of the, the weather dynamics, which are certainly accelerating uh, mm-hmm. the complexity of challenge that we face right now. Yeah, and you really hit that right on the the ingredients. The ingredients are there where we have, and, and California is one of those places where from a meteorological standpoint, as a meteorologist myself, we know that they can go and see one extreme to the other, right? Earlier this year, we, we actually had an episode with uh, Dr. Ian Giamenko where we talked about some of the wild weather of, of this year 
that we saw really across the United States. And it started in the West where we had, I believe, nine atmospheric river events. And so when you see these events, you're like, oh, that's so great. They're getting the much needed rainfall now. Unfortunately, that, that comes with the flooding, which that's not the good part. We don't want to see that. But but when you do get these beneficial rains, you're like, oh, this is great for the drought. However, what that is eventually going to do is grow vegetation. Well, when the next heat wave comes and the next drought comes, we just know that whatever vegetation is able to grow, those fuels are then going to dry out and unfortunately be sitting there waiting for whatever that spark may be, whether that may be lightning or a man-made cause. I mean, uh, uh, you know, man-made um, sparks, as we'll call them, are kind of drive some of the larger fires that we've seen. But we've got these lightning events that can um, create that spark. And then once we've got the ingredients already in place, that's really all we need to kind of get these these large fires develop. And sometimes they turn into these conflagrations in places like Paradise, California. Uh, and then you're kind of left to pick up the pieces and, and struggling to see how, how can we learn from this event? How can we try and prevent this um, in the future? Um, and we've kind of talked around this a little bit now talking about how people perceive fire. Let's talk about how people perceive risk to something, because b- before I got to IBHS, you know, in the broadcast community, we're talking to people about trying to prepare ahead of weather events. And that includes fires where it's fires are different in the sense that. It's not one of those things you might have fire weather conditions set up, but you're not necessarily going to get a fire. If I'm forecasting for a tropical cyclone to make landfall somewhere, the tropical cyclone is going to make landfall where, wherever you're, you're talking to. Um, but with wildfire, it's a little bit different. You're kind of preparing for if something happens, we have to go. But I think it's difficult for people to try and understand what their risk actually is to something mm-hmm. and thus how to respond to it. So I'm curious. How how do you kind of perceive people um, and their understanding about wildfire risk? And I know you like to ask people this question, where are you going to be when wildfire strikes, right? And so I think yeah. I'm interested in how those two play together. That's, so you've, you've seen enough of my talks then to know that's where I often start. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think yeah. it's a really important question because most people perceive they're going to be home when the ignition yeah. occurs. And they've got this set of actions in their mind that they're going to take. And they're like, you know, first thing, I'm going to close the doors, I'm going to close the windows, I'm going to close the skylight, you know, I'm going to go through this logical plan, I'm going to put my go bag in the car, I'm going to do these things. And, and in reality, they're in town, or they're somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And they didn't leave their home and condition um, to be, you know, safe, they, they left the windows open, they left the, the skylight open, or, you know, one of the other, other event, other key things they may have done. Um, I think people you know, we live in California. Um, There's so many hazards in everyday life, right? Mm-hmm. In California, you have no idea when the next earthquake is going to strike. So you just put that out of your mind and you hope you've done the best you can. But, you know, have you strapped the, um, you know, the bookshelves uh, to the wall so that they fall over, they don't crush you? I mean, there's there's certain right. things you can try and do to anticipate, you know, protecting your family. There's some, you know, additional strapping you can do if you are, uh, you know, a foundation that's not uh, a perimeter foundation, but there's not a lot you can do. Um, in the fire space, I think we're gaining more um, situational awareness, I might call it, mm-hmm. uh, um, more ability to recognize when we are in critical fire weather conditions. Um, we understand red flag uh, warnings a little better, um, mm-hmm. but but we're often in dry, you know, low humidity conditions for long time periods. And so you get kind of numb to that environment. And, um, you know, you, you hope that things will go well that day, but you can't anticipate that they will. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so, you know, I'm trying to spend a lot of time talking to communities and, and talking to families around the choices you make and trying to sit, set yourself up for the best possible outcome um, and to, to, you know, have a different scenarios to work for. I mean, I think we, we build a typical scenario and we hope that it, you know, lays out in the way that we think it will and we think we've anticipated all the needs. But in reality, what you're hoping is that, you, you know, you, you've done as best as best you can. Um, but it's always going to be more complex or different than we anticipate. And, you know, I mean, as a great illustration, like the town of Paradise had done a lot of planning for wildfire and they had experienced a lot of wildfires coming from the west. They mm -hmm. didn't quite have as much planning about a wildfire coming from the east. And so, you know, you don't always get the fire you, you've had in the past. Um, so becoming more nimble um, and becoming more prepared is is critical. I mean, you know, last this last year, um, in relation to the Lahaina fires, I answered this question several times about, um, you know, why do we need some kind of siren system that seems like antiquated, outdated technology? And it's, it, you know, to me, it's a really good reminder that you need multiple forms of communication. You need to understand Absolutely. multiple forms of communication. We have lots more, you know, technological abilities. We can use all kinds of apps these days, which are going to try and tell us which way we should evacuate. Um, but in my experience, we often have, you know, low bandwidth. We may not have power at all. And so we need uh, many different ways for people to be prepared and for information to be relayed. And and people have, um, you know, different different levels of fluency with different kinds of technology. And so we've got to do a, you know, a multiple methods at all times mm -hmm. type approach. And, um, you know, the siren system for me is kind of base. It, it means something is going wrong. Be, step outside and pay attention, right? Then hopefully right. you can kick in some other uh, senses of interpretation of what might what might be going. Yeah, you're right. Um, we talk about that with other perils here uh, from our science communications arm and, and preparedness for the um, out ahead of a weather event. We tell people that all the time, have multiple ways to get warnings, have multiple ways to get information because we, we do have a lot coming at us and there you might need a diverse set of communication tools so that if one fails or one is having difficulty, you have other options. And and we understand as well, it, it's also difficult to, with all that information, it can be difficult to filter that information. Like, okay, which pieces mm -hmm. of information do I need to pull down and which ones do I need to use to make a decision and make a good decision now to try and, and escape or, or evacuate a get out, whatever, whatever the case may be. And that can be challenging in and of itself, especially with the day of social media and everything at our fingertips. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Exactly. And I, and I, you know, just you can't design a system that's going to work for everybody everywhere mm -hmm. all the time. Right. And so right. you need many, many, many ways. And so like when the Tubbs fire ignited, um, there were multiple power lines that were down across California. One of those um, uh, wildfires that, that ignited was also in a little community called Redwood Valley, which was mm -hmm. on the north end, um, north of a, a town called Ukiah. And, you know, the only form of communication that was working that night was the radio. And mm -hmm. Uh, people, you know, the system was so, um, so much unfolding in real time with so little information because the ignitions happened at night and you couldn't get eyes on it. And, you know, it was a really fantastic reminder that you need multiple ways for evacuation. You need multiple routes out and you may have to use the one that you never intended. Um, so I, I think that's all a part, a, a, a part of becoming more nimble and more um more skilled in in having to think through and walk through these experiences and mm -hmm. um, 
you know, it's, it's hard stuff too. I mean, it, cause it's scary for kids and it's yeah. um, scary for parents and, um, and it's, and it's the, the kinds of things that you just sort of never want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes a lot like for a municipality to actually practice an evacuation at scale and make it fun enough that people are willing to do it. And mm-hmm. I've got a great little story um, from the, one of the communities in Santa Cruz. They're a small little fire safe council and they have one mm-hmm. of the CERT teams, which is a community emergency response team. And mm-hmm. uh, this this community is practicing using their ham radios and um, and trying to, you know, cause they get shut off from communication. And so they've been doing treasure hunts with the kids and they've been doing adults wow. against kids in using radios and radio communication um, and doing these treasure hunts as a way to get familiar with how to use a radio. And I'm thinking, now this is exactly the level. This is what adaptation looks like. This means right. you're bringing in everyone at every level. You're making it fun and you're figuring out ways that you can work through difficult situations and you're practicing it in a way that's not scary um, so that when and if the real event happens, you're prepared. Right, right. Yeah. And it's that creative uh creative skills and that we need to really develop and and import into our science communication and trying to get, figure out how we get those messages to people in a way that they can understand. And, and you and I will get a little bit more into kind of the the messaging and some of your work with boots on the ground. um, Some of those efforts there here in just a minute, but you know, really quick, we talked about with um, California having seen a lot of changes over the last in in decades of of California, there've been variety of different legislations passed that have focused around wildfire. And I believe you've been involved in some of those legislative efforts. Um, But I I did notice kind of roughly over the last 20 years or so, we've had about five different types of legislation that have been passed, but we've gone all the way back to 1965 between that time period before there were only four, maybe throughout that entire time frame. So I think that might be, another cue where we talked about already that people's perception of wildfire has changed. So can you share a little bit about some of those processes that you've been involved in? Yeah, it's a, it's a big topic. So my -hmm. role is really to translate science to policy and, 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 and try and make it understandable. And so I, Mm -hmm. I often serve as a a technical resource for legislators or their aides. And, you know, after the Tubbs fire, there was so much interest in how do we solve this problem, you know, from the utility scale, ignition point to evacuations, to warnings, to how do we get funding on the ground to help harden our communities? How do we get into the planning space? Um, how do we think about it from a land use planning perspective uh, to, you know, are there are there barriers in our review of fuel treatments that we need to alleviate? Um, California's a highly regulated state and, and, you know, for listeners coming across from, from other parts of the United States, it's, you know, it's, it, we are our own unique beast in that way. And it's, and it's, mm-hmm. and it's very complex. Um, so, you know, where, wh- what dials do we turn? How much effort do we put? You can use funding to, you can use uh, policy to create funding streams. You can use policy to create regulatory changes. You can use policy to create organizational changes. And we've just seen hundreds and hundreds of bills to try and do that. Um, mm-hmm. And many of them have been successful. Um, I think that the ones that I'm, um, you know, I'm particularly excited about are, are a couple, uh, well, and, and let me just back up, like, also, we've done massive work in the in the prescribed fire space and really yeah. tackled that issue head on and and changed liability standards, created insurance pools, created better standards for um, qualifications and other folks to become qualified to to do prescribed fire work. So you know, 
my myself and and a whole network of folks are really trying to take a an overall systems viewpoint and try and um, address the challenges and and work with our legislative partners to to try and really tackle these issues in a in as best of a possible way and I, I think you know we're going to be a very different state in a few years once all these things come into play um, the pieces that I've had the strongest hand in have been in um, changes related to defensible space policy in, in California. Mm -hmm. So we got into defensible space work. So that's, you know, fuel modification in and around the home to prevent mm -hmm. wildfire from driving directly to the house or from the house igniting and then sending wildfire out to the wildland. Um, but that has evolved in thinking in large part from you know, work that's taken place at the IBHS lab um, okay. to to realize, you know, more levels of attention and detail to the fuels adjacent to the home are just mm -hmm. so critical for um, being able to manage, uh, you know, the threat of, of embers landing on the vegetation or the fuels that might be, you know, surrounding the building in a moat of, of flammability <laughs> that yes. I often yeah. think about. Um, so California's you know, upgrading the defensible space policies to include a new, mm -hmm. a new zone, which is the first five feet, zero to five. Um, we commonly referred to that as zone zero in California because we already had mm -hmm. zones one and two. Um, I've also been involved in a bill called AB 38, which um, had multiple intentions. Uh, one was to try and secure funds to be able to put investment into a number of communities to be able to see if we could uplift in the home hardening and defensible space uh, way for those that are most vulnerable. And so there are three pilot um, communities that are being that's being worked on right now and three more are joining. So uh, it's kind of a, a, a partnership between the federal folks using FEMA money as well as some state money to try and deliver that. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, after these couple thousand homes get evaluated and changed, what impact that makes. But AB 38 also has two other really interesting components. Um, one is a disclosure process at the real estate transaction point. And, and I bring this forward because this is the time period when people are least attached to what happens at the home. The, you know, the seller yeah. is motivated to sell and the buyer is motivated to buy. And at that point, you care less about exactly what vegetation is where. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so AB 38 now requires a disclosure to the future buyer uh, about um, the defensible space work that's occurred. And, you know, as I think about that moving forward, I think it's going to be a really relevant negotiating point. Um, right. and, and it becomes this point of, well, how do we upgrade uh, the condition of the home so that um, it's it's going to be robust to this, this set of fuel related risks? Mm -hmm. um, what's coming in 2025 is also a component related to the home hardening work that's a part of that original bill. So, mm -hmm. you know, at a, at a statewide level, this is a broad brush approach to really begin to inform folks at the, the point of transaction you know, what the what the hazards are and how to you know mitigate some of those hazards. And I think that um, will be a great stimulus um, for you know, managing our existing you know, structures that we have. Um, we can change policy around how we build and where we build, but that mm -hmm. isn't the majority of homes that we're going to have in California going forward. We have this you know, existing set of construction constructed buildings that we need to address. So I bring those two forward as I think really um, pivotal pivotal changes in how we're yeah. addressing the entire issue. Yeah, and I'm glad that you mentioned those. Uh, you know, that, that those are a couple that I, I'm familiar with, you know, in my in my time here at IBHS. And, you know, we've talked about this um, from a mitigation standpoint in, in the real estate. We actually had a, um, a past episode where we addressed some of these issues. We kind of talked more about our, um, our fortified program, which is our wind and hail uh, mitigation mm -hmm. program. We have Wildfire Prepared Home, which is our wildfire mitigation uh, designation program that we uh, recently launched last year. 
And so um, it's talking about things like you know, when you're buying a house, you you take a look at um, these MLS, these multiple listing services, and your, mm-hmm. your realtor is going through and they're looking at all these different assets that are on a home, uh, looking at all the different attributes. And you're saying, oh, OK, this one has some new features. They just did re- redid the kitchen or um, they just replaced the roof or replaced the, the HVAC and, and that kind of thing. But things like do they have a fortified roof? Um, in, in this case, do they have, uh, you know, when's the last time the defensible space was addressed here? So it's kind of getting them started off on the right foot when the transaction is made that, that I think that's a great point that you, that you made there. And it's ultimately we would want to get that into just a regular part, like rather than just being an extra ad comment, uh, on, on the MLS for that particular property, it's going to be something that's come standard on there. Is this mitigated? Are you defensible space mm-hmm. check? Does it pass this, all these guys? guidelines, because at the end of the day, that's how we're going to make the, the biggest change going forward um, with some of these, uh, certainly with new homes, right, as we get to build better from the start. But to your point, we have a lot of infrastructure that's already built, and we are going to have to mitigate that. And so I think it, it's everything working in tandem, because even if everything flipped tomorrow and we immediately started building perfectly, we're a generation away from seeing everything kind of uh, come together where we've got everything in the right place. But we've got a lot of homes that aren't new that we need to try and retrofit now uh, and make changes to now to where we can really reduce that wildfire risk. Yeah, I've been talking to real estate agents and to building contractors. And um, one of the things that I've been really trying to communicate is that we need to get in the habit of expressing this work as a part of the general description of the marketability of the house. It's not just about mm-hmm. the remodeled kitchen and the updated furnace. You know, right. it's you know often you'll see you know new 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 roof, uh, you know new flooring, new kitchen. Well, and it also mm-hmm. should say you know fuels managed, home hardened, yes. or you know whatever we want to call it, fireproofing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we still need the language matters and. I think yes. home hardening is still a little bit of a, a funky term. I think we're, we're going to mm-hmm. have to come up with something so that people can relate to a little better mm-hmm. in this space. But uh, this is just as important as all those other details. And in some ways, they can be harder and more daunting to to, ta- to tackle as a new homeowner. Um, right. And so, you know, maybe the remodeled kitchen is perfect, but but on the other hand, maybe you want to put your finishing, your own personal finishing touches on that, and and this other yeah. you know stuff at the at the you know exterior elements of the building and and the fuels around the building. That stuff's maybe harder in the end. And so, mm-hmm. um, just to try and recognize how to express this stuff and and protect clients and and protect the investment and the and the monetary value we have. Because most of us, yeah. for most of us, our wealth is tied up in our mm-hmm. in our homes, and right. uh, you know we, we don't we don't need to realize that, um, but at some point we do, and we need to protect that asset as best as we can. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the it's one of the biggest um, investments that many people will make in a lifetime purchasing a home. You know, thirty, forty, fifty year, however long. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that's certainly something that we have to consider kind of from the get go to really um, get that awareness becoming a, a more regular thing. So, um, and we talked about regulation in California. I mean, we've been interacting with a lot of states across the West. We know California is kind of you know, leading the charge right now, but we know that there are other states that are making a lot of changes. We've had a lot of engagements with partners in Colorado and Oregon. They have legislation as well that's put into place. I mean, working with our wildfire prepared home uh, designation program on both of those fronts, trying to expand that. It's currently only available in California, but um, we're seeing a lot of momentum in other states. Has that kind of been um, your view as well? I know we've got Utah out there, which also is you know, deals with wildfires too. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting to to watch what's happening in Oregon and and their successes and challenges. I mean, they're trying to do a lot in a really mm -hmm. short amount of time period. Where you know, you compare it to California, we've got this this thought about fuel management at the home level. We call it defensible space, being on the books mm -hmm. since 1965, right? So yes. we've got you know some socialization and some familiarity uh, with that term uh, for a long time, and you know, trying to supercharge that and fast track it and in other states is, I think, going to be ambitious. Um, I know mm -hmm. that, you know, often people are like, well, what is the public backlash going to be? And it's like, you know, yeah. at some point, um, you know, the palatability is important, but the mm -hmm. enormity of the challenge is so significant. Um, you know, this isn't this isn't trivial stuff. This really is, as you said, an existential crisis. And you know, figuring out how we adapt and and live in an environment that is fire prone and and get out of the kind of cognitive disbelief that it can't happen here. Um, the sooner we do that, the better off we'll all be. And, you know, mm -hmm. I've talked to enough families and enough folks that have been devastated by wildfire and it's a multi-generational loss. And mm -hmm. the, you know, the societal impact is so significant that it's worth the investment and it's really worth holding everyone's hand and, and walking them through this and saying, you know, it's great you have insurance that that's a really a great climate mitigation strategy, but insurance isn't going to repair everything. And mm -hmm. you know we really need to figure out what what is within our control, um, and you know what we can do to be a good partner with the insurance industry to invest in, a good partner within our community, so that our our volunteer fire departments as well as our professional and paid services know that you know that when they travel down the road to your place, it's going to be a safe place to to stay and defend. Um, that yeah. they're going to be safe there and that, you know, most of the work has taken place uh, because ultimately, you know, coming back to the kind of science side of me, we talk about fire mm -hmm. in a fire triangle perspective and fire behavior right. is a product of, you know, topography, weather and fuels. Well, the only thing we can do on the topographical choice is decide where we're going to build our home. The weather piece, you know, maybe we can choose a climate that we like, but the piece that we really can manage is that fuel equation. and. Um, you know, in our historical records, we've seen drier times with without the same intensity of wildfire that we're currently mm -hmm. having right now. So it's a it's an all end. I mean, we need to better steward our ecosystems. We need to better steward our properties. And, and we really need to just accept that that's the cost of living in this glorious place called, you know, the Western United States. And, yeah. um, and, and I'm, you know, I'm I'm quite confident that with good information people can make wise decisions and can and can begin to incorporate this kind of work in a in a regular routine that becomes part of the annual cycle of taking care of the property taking care of the family mm -hmm. uh, and finding some joy in all of that yeah yeah i think you're right and, and, and it is an all and problem um and We've seen fire also now starting to interact more with our built environment. We know that fire is a natural part of our ecosystem, but when we now have communities that are nestled in that uh, into the wild, then we have this wild and urban interface, right? We've got this interface mm -hmm. between what's happening in the wildland where there previously might have been nothing, and now there's a community. So it's those gradients where the changes uh, in landscapes happen um, that we're starting to see some of those negative impacts. And so with that, I want to transition into a little bit of the work that you've done. I know coming up here um, in November, uh, we're going to have the uh, five-year anniversary of the campfire, which mm -hmm. just destroyed the community of Paradise, California uh, in 
and, and was one of the state's deadliest wildfires. Um, but let's talk about some of your work that you did there. Because, and I'm going to, we're going to highlight two fires here over the next couple of minutes, if we can. You've already brought up the, the Tubbs fire. We had the Oakland Hills fire back in uh, the early 1990s. But Campfire 2017 coming up on the five year. And then also we want to uh, hit the wild Marshall wildfire because that's something that um, both IBHS and you have, have done work on in, in both of those fires. So we'll start with the campfire first. And I kind of want to ask, what was it that happened in this town that um, caused so much of the town to, to, to burn, to be destroyed? Yeah, it's a terrific question. Um, uh, you know, I want to acknowledge that I got the privilege of a local community member, um, Zeke Lender, uh, brought mm-hmm. myself and Dr. Steve Corals in, as well as Dr. Eric Knapp from the Forest Service. And we, we got in on the ground and started looking at some early some early in, you know, things that we were curious about, and that led us to actually doing a pretty detailed analysis to try and understand the effect of uh, the California Building Code, because there were 140 or so homes that had been built after the adoption of the, the uh, wildland urban interface component of exterior building mm-hmm. performance. Um, so that's what you know really got us in there. You know, the campfire is just a, a, a horrific story. It's, it took place in November. Um, I often ask people in November, what time does, if a fire starts at 5.30 in the morning or 6.30 in the morning, can you see the smoke column? And in November, you can't, right? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was a power line that came down. It, 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 um, we knew that there were red flag warnings that day, but it was, it was the, you know, end of the shoulder season. And I remember being in Arcata mm-hmm. where I live on the coast and, and the needles from the redwood trees were just crispy. Uh, and on the coast, you don't experience that very often. So sure enough, we had an ignition, um, wind, um, wind driven, and within just a few hours, we had spot fires across basically every major artery in Paradise. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, yes, there were fuels in the forest land that were sufficient to carry the fire, but that wind was really what was the primary culprit, and and that um, you know created spot fires. It brought embers uh, that landed on buildings, found you know ways to get inside buildings, and. Um, and also ignite fuels adjacent to buildings. And, and so what you see when you, when you step back and you look at it is that once the, once the homes engage, and they engage pretty darn early, that you had an urban conflagration at that point, and you had huge heat load uh, that was produced. And, um, and many times, you know, there might have just been a surface fire um, you know, working through town. There are certainly some places where the fire crowned out, but in most cases, mm-hmm. it was really building to building spread. And so it was a combination of embers from the vegetation, as well as we assume some level of construction related embers, um, which are different in shape and, and different in, in, in um, the BTU capacity that they can hold on to so they can really be mm-hmm. more effective in, in creating new ignitions. Um, from our work, what we learned, um, we were really curious what was the strongest driver of building survival or, or um, or loss, and it was really the distance to the nearest destroyed is what we found, mm-hmm. and uh, to the nearest destroyed structure wasn't just homes. And um, the number we uh, came up with uh, from a statistical perspective was 54 feet. So mm-hmm. if your if your home or a subject home was within 54 feet of a um, another lost building, there was a super high probability that uh, the building would fail. So that's really what drove. Um, drove it. And I think a lot about it from just like a, you know, there's a shadow effect. Once you start getting, you know, an ignition in one location, it can spread very quickly and act as a contagion, you know, throughout a community. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, you know, a lot of folks had managed a lot of fuels, had done a lot of things, but um, even though the lot sizes were large, the average lot size is over an acre. 
-hmm. in paradise, but a lot of them are long and skinny. Um, and so still buildings can be close to each other. And, mm. you know, so our findings, so that's, you know, one wildland example, you know, are really important and relevant to the work that's happening at the Insurance Institute and that structure separation mm. experiment that we referenced very early on, because trying mm. to figure out at what point do we really start to, you know, require or advocate for, you know, greater mitigations between buildings? What is that distance that we need to think mm -hmm. about? And I think we've all been sort of operationally talking about 30 feet. Um, yeah. But, you know, you can see on one tail end that, you know, our work found 50 feet. So, um kind of a an interesting you know data point in this collection of information and and, and that we can use to to create better best management practices and, and strategies to address the issues yeah that's right and um you know as i mentioned we're going to be having um we've had some tests again already ongoing the last uh, month or two and then we'll be picking up some others I, I, again i believe starting uh, next month to to look at those and uh, just kind of an overall um outline. I mean, we, we had been seeing, you know, looking at some of those critical distances, right, 20, 30 plus feet um, and trying to work back and forth and, and trying uh, wood structures next to a, a home or metal structures next to a home. Um, is it facing a window? Is it at a perpendicular zero degree angle or is it at an oblique angle, like 45 degrees? Mm -hmm. So we're trying to see because we, we know that in a neighborhood, we've got all the different um, juxtapositions of structures near each other, um, varying distances, varying angles. And we also know that wind interacts with that. So mm -hmm. that's one of the unique abilities of our, our test chamber is that we can we can look at what the flow coming out of the chamber looks like without any structures at all. Well, now what does it look like with a house? Now is, what does it look like with another structure? Well, now that's like that structure on fire and do it again. So it's mm -hmm. this repeatability, right, that we just there's so many different variables and it, it really does take that community of, of researchers and, and on the ground work that's really helping us to learn more and trying to make some of those decisions moving forward to try and figure out what those um, critical spacings are. And, you know, you mentioned the 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 structure distances, um, also some of those connective fuels as well between the properties. But how also did the age of construction and the codes at which those homes were built to, how did that impact um, some of the survivability rates you saw? Yeah, it's an interesting question. The, 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 the beauty from a scientific perspective of the campfire, and this sounds totally cold and heartless, and if anyone is a survivor of the campfire, please know that I, I don't I don't think about it in that way. You know, there are real homes and real lives that were involved. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there was pretty much a continuous burn window and there was relatively little fire response. So mm -hmm. you have, in, in many respects, a well-designed experiment, one that you would never want to truly deploy, but it mm -hmm. gives you a chance to kind of look at how do buildings perform on their own with relatively little uh, intervention. Mm -hmm. um, so what we saw is that all the older homes basically were around you know, 12 to 15 percent survivability. You mm. don't see increases in, in survivability until, um, in, until basically the last 20 years of construction. Um, and so then you end up with about 35 to 38 percent survivability. Um, and then in the last decade, which is after the adoption of the Chapter 7 building code, we had 42 percent survival. Mm -hmm. um, that was not statistically significant of the previous decade, um, but it shows an, you know, an increasing trend. And I think the, the lesson that I take from that is that when you, when you look at age of construction, um, you don't really know what, what the condition of the roof is. You don't know if you've got the original roof, if, you, if it was replaced 30 years ago, replaced 40 years ago. You don't, you don't really know exactly what's happening on those structures. But 
buildings and homes built in the last 20 years, you can still assume that they probably have their original roof on them and they're still within their period of performance. And so, you know, we do know that the roof shoulders the majority of the responsibility for protection of the building. And so, you know, increasing survivorship of buildings that are newer and are still within the service life of their roof, to me, is a really key ingredient. We also know that most people are installing double pane windows in the last two two decades, so that's you know an increase. Um, and then you know fiber cement siding has become more common in the last couple of decades. It's not it's not it's, um, exclusive, uh, but you know so there's some some elements of the construction materials that we're using as well as sort of modern construction techniques that I think are coming to play, and we can see that. Um, what Paradise said to me is that there's still improvement in, in the building code and, and in, uh, there are things that we can do to refine that. And, you know, we were really testing it at the building code at its infancy, in essence, right? You know, the very, very first version, because it comes on the books in, in 2008. Um, mm -hmm. And building codes are going to adapt and evolve through time. And, and I think we're going to get a right. better handle on the radiant heat issues. Um, the other thing that Paradise doesn't have is an advantage is doesn't have zone zero um, at play right because it, that's not on the books yet and so i mean i clearly saw lots and lots of, of fuels around homes and so right. i'm i'm very optimistic about you know the deployment of the new building code plus zone zero and how those two are going to interact and i, I think mm -hmm. You know, borrowing some of the terms from the last podcast you guys did on Lahaina with Ian was talking about, you know, a number of the ingredients. And, you know, mm -hmm. if you had three of the five ingredients, the, in, you know, the probability of survival increases significantly. I yeah. think that's what we're going to start to see in California. The question is, can we supercharge that to retrofit existing structures mm -hmm. to also, you know, be in that space? And, you know, I'm optimistic with good information. Um, people will be it'll be in their self-interest to try and do some mm -hmm. of those things. Yeah, for sure. And I know uh, in the town of Paradise, and I mentioned earlier that we we launched our wildfire prepared home designation program last year. It was in the state of California, but we launched in Paradise with um, a homeowner who her home perished in the fire. Um, she was able to build back a new home uh, in another part of the city, and she became our first wildfire prepared home designation. It was a base designation. Now, while it was new construction, um, that's really the best opportunity, you know, from from the work that we are doing, it's a great opportunity for you to retrofit your home too. And it's going to include things like that zone zero and creating that defensible mm -hmm. space, that non-combustible moat of protection essentially uh, around the property. And we, we also have our plus designation, which is you know, really geared towards new construction where you can, if you're going to start from the ground up, um, you can do it right. Now we, we have had some homes though that have retrofitted to that. So it is possible, but um, I think getting solutions like that and others in place to really try and make Make a difference now to the retrofit um, idea because, as I mentioned earlier, right, we could build all new homes, perfectly good, starting tomorrow, but we still got time before we start seeing that that meaningful uptake um, in and starting spreading out into to more of those communities. So there's certainly some some good work happening um, mm -hmm. in communities, and and I I think I agree with you. You know, as we've seen these improvements in the codes coming forward, uh, I am optimistic that as we start to incorporate things like um, the defensible space as well as that, um, the, the, how the structure is built and what the materials we're using, I, th I think that we are going to continue to see hopefully some improvement there um, in that regard. So um, we've talked kind of about the campfire, and then I wanted to turn next to the Marshall Fire, which you know, we, we saw the images of the campfire, which um, were quite devastating to see so many, so, so much of the community um, go up in flames. And that one, when you're thinking about wildfire, 
You think about this community nestled in the wildland, right? That was paradise. Marshall, Colorado was a different landscape. It was different fuel type altogether. There wasn't mm-hmm. a, a, a multi or a, a a forest with lots of terrain, lots of topography that were involved in that. This was a grassland fire. So I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the differences. Um, but first, kind of um, what did you find in the Marshall Fire that was different from the campfire and how it unfolded? Yeah, and I think this is a really sort of terrific line of thinking because, you know, every fire has its own flavor and every fire has its mm-hmm. own kind of signature. And, you know, there's some formula to a, a sort of of loss that I think we're we're generally talking about, but what variable becomes more important in kind of the stepwise progression has been really it's good to get on the ground and see that uh, firsthand. Yeah. So when we were talking about the campfire, you know, it was a lot of fine fuels that are associated with the um, conifer overstory and uh, the oak woodland overstory, and you know, it was the it was the fall and it was a period of when trees drop their leaves, and so mm-hmm. there were a lot of fine fuels around. Um, which meant that we saw more gutter fires and, um, you know, okay. there was a lot of receptivity in, in terms of what was surrounding the buildings and for embers. You know, you move to the backside of the Rocky Mountains where people are in the open plains and it's a totally different story because how do you create privacy and security in, in an environment where, you know, you're just on the plains and you're more or less exposed to each other? Uh, and then you get a grassland fire. So these two come together. I'll, I'll, I'll connect them in a second. You get a grassland fire with embers that really don't, you know, they don't last very long. They self-extinguish pretty quickly. Um, mm-hmm. But grass is receptive, of course. Uh, but you get this grassland fire with high winds and even higher than they were in the campfire. Um, My- and the embers move forward. And what they end up doing is they end up slamming into fences and fall into the base of the fence. And there's a few um, collected leaves and debris that you'll see at the base of a wooden fence and you can get ignition in that. And what we saw was that this was a fire about the connectivity of our privacy that's made through this labyrinth of wood fences uh, mm-hmm. in these very suburban communities. And, um, you know, I kind of I understood that intuitively, but until I saw it to see that basically the way that we've interconnected our buildings uh, from mm-hmm. neighbor to neighbor to neighbor, uh, we created these natural fuses that could wick fire from one building to the next. So grassland right. embers, which don't, don't travel too far, aren't super successful, but they can find other grass, create more ignition in grass, and that grass ran into the fences, and then the fences just brought fire to each of these structures. So it wasn't a fire of gutters um, and the vents only become weakened at that point once you get construction related embers because they weren't really the the grassland embers weren't really successful in in penetrating the vents. So Mm -hmm. kind of a different signature, but one that's super controllable. Um, Yes, we can still maintain that labyrinth of fences, but we just need to disconnect them towards the towards the point of attachment to the buildings and not very expensive um you know you can add a a gate that can be metal as an example Mm -hmm. Uh, you could add a different panel that's made of a non-combustible material if you don't want to add a gate um and you know these are not expensive expensive things to change overall a little sweat labor certainly um and i talk a lot about there's huge room for innovation in the in the gate design space right now like you can't just go to your, Mm -hmm. your local big box hardware or building supply store and find this great collection of beautiful gates that you might want to pop in. Um, But, you know, these are, these are the simple details that people can make a, make a big difference with. So, you know, had um, paradise had more modern vents, that would have been great. Had they maybe used some gutter covers to to prevent some of those um, 
uh, fires right at the roof edge, which you know mm -hmm. the roof is and the roof edge is a real vulnerable location. Head fence has been disconnected in the Marshall fire. You know, these are the kinds of things that I think are very achievable. And like last night, I was giving a program in a, a little rural community on the um, east side of the Sierras, and one of the mm -hmm. fire chiefs who was in the room walked up to me afterwards and said, "Thank you for bringing practical and at least you know and low low expense solutions to this community. People need to hear that there are things yeah. that they can do that are quite achievable, and it's great to to see mm -hmm. that there's science that backs that up." Yeah, and I think that also it that is an empowering thing, right, to be able to tell homeowners that's something we're keenly focused on here is telling people that you're not powerless. There are things you can do to protect your home from the perils that that impact them. And that includes wildfire. And there are solutions and they're achievable solutions. And we, mm -hmm. we consider that, too, when we're I mean, some. And look, some things are harder than others. Sometimes it is a, a, an easier fix, a, a lower cost thing. And sometimes it's a little bit more uh, energy to do that. But it's trying to find how can we make the biggest change now? And when do we need to make that transition and say, like, OK, we've made as many little changes that we can. But when do we need to step it up and do the big mm -hmm. things, too? So I think it's to your point, finding the right balance there, as as that um, uh, fire official was telling you. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's really what I, I try and leave people is that. There's reason for hope in this. Like mm -hmm. you know, we really have a much clearer understanding of what is happening in the in the building performance space. Now that we know that, we can do direct action to address those issues and the mitigations are within our control. And you know, once we start amplifying that and and putting them in place at scale, um, we're gonna make a really substantial change in the outcome of of both the individual home as well as the broader community. And mm -hmm. so, you know, with some information and, and detangling, because I think most people feel like, oh my gosh, it's so overwhelming. Where do I start? It's all terrible. Yeah. You know, there's nothing I can do. Uh, you know, in, in large part, I think that we we get so fascinated about these extreme events and we get so into the drama of it that, you know, we mm -hmm. really, through our, our media messages, you know, just share the tragedy, the horror, and, you know, it you know, the impossibility of success. And, yeah. um, you know, that, that, you know, sensationalism has some appropriateness, but it's also, we need to then take it and put it into the empowered place mm -hmm. and to be able to share, you know, well, what are the successes like in Lahaina with a red roof uh, building mm -hmm. and what exactly, you know, are the elements of success and how do we put those into practice mm -hmm. and, and, and provide evidence that it's possible. Yeah, and you bring up a great point, and it's a perfect timing as well, because I wanted to transition into some of the more specific um, education efforts that you're involved in, you know, your, your boots on the ground efforts. But, um, you know, being a former broadcast meteorologist, it was something that, you know, something something happens in a community reporters go out to basically document and share the people stories and see what's happening and, and see, um, to, to your point, you know, the the scale of, of what has happened and to show how this storm or fire has changed people's lives. But well, it's important to talk about those, those stories of, of survival and how people and communities like pulling themselves back together and, and rebuilding. It's also, what can we learn from these events? What were the successes, whether they were intended or accidental successes? And we're like, I didn't know that worked. We're like, yes, it worked. And here's a whole system that's built around uh, mitigation actions like this. So I think it's in these um, unfortunate events, it's using those to learn to do better the next time because it's, we all want to try and prevent loss. We are here to, at IBHS to prevent avoidable loss. And we want to do that for communities and all fair perils that they face. So um, 
as we kind of transition into that, let's talk about some of the work that you're doing, because, you know, you just said one example, you're talking to a, a small rural community yesterday um, about fire mitigation. So let's talk about some of the efforts that you're doing. Yeah, well, I, I'm really and I'm really enjoying what what opportunities I have right now. Um, I've I've got a, a few of the resources to to work with communities throughout California, even though my geographic assignment is is off in the north northwest corner of the state, I'm, I'm really yeah. trying to work to stand up uh, a new uh, cohort of folks in California that have expertise in this wildland and built space. Um, and then I'm also trying to support, uh, the state has hired a whole bunch of new people that work with fire safe councils. And so we don't, I'm trying to help support a qualified, developing a qualified workforce to work in this space, to have um, you know, the ability to have people in your community to hold your hand uh, through these difficult and challenging, mm -hmm. you know, adaptation uh, adoption strategies. And um, so that gives me the opportunity to, to work with small communities. It gives me opportunity to, to speak before large audiences. Um, I work, you know, a lot, as I mentioned, in policy and, you know, and I serve as a technical resource for for folks that are interested in exploring some of these topics and uh, trying to lend what what wisdom I've I've been able to garner through the years and and um, and and sort of the systems viewpoint that I have on you know how you operationalize a, a lot of this work. In my job, I've also been a, a department head, and so I've sat in county government and at the table with all the other department heads in county government. So I've got this kind of yeah. wildland side, this county government side, and then this fire side, and I try and you know lace that together with uh, the human connection, the sociological way mm -hmm. that you know, people adopt and take in, in information um, and and really try and bring a message that there is reason for hope. There are things that we can do. There, there is uh, action that's within our control that can make a difference and you won't regret it. Um, mm -hmm. So and I've been working at many scales through, you know, virtual events to, to in-person events and then, you know, continuing to to try and develop and deliver a research program that that continues to advance what we know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's great work. And you know, we talked about kind of um, you know diver diversifying the message, right? Because you're talking about you're talking to different people from different walks of life who have had different experiences, and also like how do we how do we talk to them? We know that while the um, the physical science, the mitigation science of the structure and the the fuels around the structure are important, um, but it's also the social science and how people receive the information that we're giving them. Um, just because I go up to somebody and be like, hey, did you know this? And you'll be like, yeah, get out of here. I don't even know who you are, whatever. What, you know, what right do you have to tell me about anything? You don't even live there. So I think it's um, it, it's a fine line that we walk, right? We we have to understand people in order to reach them. We can't just go in there with a canned message and say like, oh, well, this is what you need to do and it works for everybody, right? It's the same thing from like an evacuation plan or a response plan. One size does not fit all. And that's important in the messaging too. Yeah. You got to meet people where they're at. Um, yeah. I, I use this one image where it's a, a covered um, trailer with this gorgeous vista in the backdrop, and um, you know, and there's these huge gaps. There's fuel all over it, and I'll and I'll put it yeah. on a slide, and I'll I'll talk to communities about. Well, what do you say when you meet this homeowner? And they usually go, "Well, gosh, it looks pretty terrible." And I say, "You know what? You live in the most amazing spot in the world. Look at that view you have. You must be so leave with proud. The you must be so glad to wake up every morning and see that view. Yeah. And you know, you just gotta you gotta figure out how to connect and." Mm -hmm. um, and appreciate everybody's piece of paradise, and yeah. and then you know try and and figure out what's what's on their mind, what's what are what are they thinking about, and then you know it's a both end. 
maybe you can weasel in some of the, the, the homework that can be done to help them prepare for fire better or just get them signed up for the alerts because maybe there's so much work to be done that it's, it's going to be a daunting task and it's going to take a while. So let's just make sure you know how to, how to get information and, and you also know how to read the, the clouds and the fire weather and the smoke to be able to anticipate that, oh, this is a hazardous situation. This is something yeah. I, need to, I need to do. Uh, I need to make a change in or I need to get myself out of here. Yeah. And I think as science communicators, it's, it's, we're not trying to be um, callous and say like, oh, well, we're just trying to figure out, you know, what makes you tick so that we can get you to do what we want you to do. It's because we firmly believe and know that the science that is showing here are the actions that can really make a difference for you. I want to give you those, but I want to also understand you to understand your concerns why you may or may not be receptive to it. What are the challenges? Because that's going to help us to apply the solutions. We might have the best solutions, but if we can't understand people, like you said, meet them where they are and communicate that, we're not going to make that progress because even if they don't know it, there might be options out there to prevent suffering for them or someone they know down the line. So that's why it, it all does play together. And there's a purpose in it. And it is all to just try and make things better for people going forward, whether they know they're at risk or not. Right. And what you might assume is maybe not true. So, you know, you got to take mm -hmm. the time to understand, understand the person, understand what they're, what they bring to the table, what they're challenged by and, and how mm -hmm. we can, you know, surround them with resources to, to help address their vulnerabilities. If they're ready. Absolutely. Yeah. And if they're not, yeah. you know, wait till they are. It's all about, you know, who's the trusted messenger and, and, you know, fortunately I work in a place where I'm not a regulator. And um, so, you know, I don't bring any risk of, of a visit, um, but, you know, I look, you know, I look for those opportunities to make a difference because the bottom line is I care about people, I care about communities and, and I, I really want to, you know, see everyone put on the best position possible so that we yeah. can avoid tragedy. Absolutely. Um, and now as we have our kind of our last couple minutes here, um, there is a, um, an effort that you're involved in in the state of California. And you know, we said that you're, you're very involved in the state and a lot of things that they're doing. Um, so tell us about this, the California's Risk Modeling Work Group. Uh, you're a member of that. Um, mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about what that group does and how you're kind of working to address some of the challenges that they're facing in the wildfire space. Right. Uh, so it's a great question. The legislature asked that a couple things um, occur over the next couple of years. One was, um, anyway, to create a couple of committees. And uh, the Risk Modeling Work Group is a subcommittee of the Wildfire Mitigation Committee. And it's, it's a group of people that have um, some expertise to, to lend to the equation. And uh, so we've been meeting for, I don't know, at least the last year or so, you know, trying to find common ground, trying to find common perspective. And we've got a draft of a report that is uh, is about to go out. Um, and, you know, it's it's pretty important stuff right now because we're, you know, talking a lot about how to solve some of the insurance challenges in California. And there's a lot of interest in catastrophe models uh, and whether catastrophe models would be, an, you know, a key element to to bring to the, to the equation. And so uh, our, our work group has been... Um, trying to just really concatenate or, or pull together uh, the variety of, of, of resources that are at play and the kind of approaches that different communities are taking and uh, to understand what different organizations bring to the table relative to, to modeling and data collection. And um, I think, you know, we're, we're just really advisory to the insurance commissioner, to the legislature. Um, and, you know, what we'll offer is, I think, a launching point for some next level of, of a deep dive into that topic. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, we've seen 
the insurance space is really dynamic right now in California, and there's a lot more interest in catastrophe models and, and what role they may play. And, and the insurance commissioner has been holding some hearings to explore that. And so, you know, we'll, that report will contribute to some of that space mm -hmm. and, and hopefully help um, us think through some of the issues. Yeah. There's not a huge, you know, big ta-da that comes out the other side of the report, except for that, you know, we really need to socialize, I think, the understanding mm -hmm. of risk and hazard and what data we can collect and and come to some more kind of operational agreements around what data means what and mm -hmm. what's the transparency around that data, what's, what's the system of collection uh, with some uniformity and the system of interpretation of that data. And because mm -hmm. uh, right now there's you know, there's, it's a lot of opaqueness in that space. And, and I, you know, for, for me, like, how, you know, how can, as a homeowner, can I best, you know, contribute to, to people perceiving my place as a place worth investing in from an insurance mm -hmm. space? How, how can I demonstrate that I've done the right stuff? And so, mm -hmm. you know, working from that scale to, you know, to the policymaker, to the insurer scale, so that we're all speaking the same language and everyone knows what dials to turn. Right. And yeah, that, that's true. And, and you spoke to that about, um, you know, the, the challenges that, that the market is facing now. I mean, California is, uh, the, the, I believe it's the largest property insurance market uh, by premium uh, in the country, if not the world. Um, it, it's pretty up there if I got the statistic right there. Um, but we know that there are a lot of challenges. And, and we know, as you, you referenced, the, the commissioner, um, Commissioner Lara, the, you know, they, they instituted their, uh, their regulation last year um, talking mm -hmm. about um, uh, insurance uh, discounts for uh, homeowners who have made some uh, steps towards mitigation. And so it's really this partnership of getting the homeowners to understand what mitigation efforts can I do now to reduce my risk and properly. And one, how do I even understand my risk, right? You talked about it in the catastrophe and catastrophe modeling space and just understanding what risk is to begin with and how the homeowner can respond to that. And thus, how can the insurer respond to that? And everything can kind of work in tandem so that we can make it um, the, the best system for, for everyone involved. And I know that the um, the governor just issued an executive order uh, just last week um, trying to address some of the challenges that we're facing uh, across the state in the wildfire and insurance space. And then Commissioner Lara also um, kind of uh, also uh, made some commitments there looking through over the next year or two. So there's a lot of uh momentum in the state of California, as we've talked about today. So uh, I'm optimistic going forward that um, all of the information that is coming together and knowing that this is a multifaceted problem that requires multifaceted um, solutions and groups coming together um, and, and finding what the balance needs to be in all of these different areas to, to try and improve the landscape for everyone. Precisely. I mean, it's a really dynamic time. Um, and we're, you know, we're working through it in California and, you know, ask me in six months where we're at because it will be somewhere different yes. than we are right now. And, right. <laughs> you know, I think that, you know, the bottom line is that people are becoming more conversant. The vocabulary is increasing. We're understanding how the system was developed in California, what the role and value and limitations that, you know, each of the departments have. And, you know, we've got propositions that influence policy mm -hmm. that, you know, you can't change a proposition without another proposition. Uh, so it, it, it becomes complex that, you know, you arrange a system and then, you know, some years later, the system doesn't quite fit for, for the issues of the time and you can't anticipate all of those, those needs. So, uh, you know, what I'm referring to is that Proposition 103, I think written in 1989, 88, mm -hmm. somewhere in there, um, mm -hmm. you know, says that we should look backwards for past performance should be uh, the way we predict future rate structures. And you know, there's a lot of interest in trying to be able to use predictive modeling and catastrophe modeling to help inform that risk evaluation. And so, you know, we're trying to figure out how to how to 
thread that needle and mm -hmm. um, bring all available information so that there's clear transparency and people understand you know what the risks are and mm -hmm. i think there's just a lot to detangle um, especially because we've so related wildfire with um, forest fire and mm -hmm. uh, and and, and the, the greatest risk being in forests and i think it's more complex than that we lose lots of homes in fires that don't have that many forests and right. so like rechanging the narrative um, and being very specific about what the risks that trees provide or don't provide mm -hmm. and, and the amenity values that they provide and and you know this whole landscape of of challenges and issues so mm -hmm. you know mediterranean ecosystems are are particularly tricky you know we have a long you know prolonged drought period and then you know, right. we have a, a more precise wetting period and and as things shift around you know we're we're struggling with trying to understand all of that stuff mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, like like you said, we're working together and we're we're learning every day. And so I I think we're gonna if we keep this model going forward, we're hopefully gonna end up in a in a good space uh, down the road. So, uh, well, Yana, we're gonna wrap up our discussion today. Today, and I thank you so much for taking the time with us. This has been a really enlightening discussion, and I hope our uh, listeners have enjoyed it as well. We've kind of covered a lot of ground here, uh, kind of talking about sort of how you got into the uh, into the industry, and we've learned from fires, and we learned about mitigation and education. So, um, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today. Oh, you bet. It's wonderful to be with you all. And thank you very much for the work that you all do at the Insurance Institute and for the partnership. And it's, you know, it's great to have so many, so many players, you know, working directly on this issue and us collaborating, you know, across, across all spectrums. So thank you very much. Agreed. Yeah. Thank you for your efforts as well. And thank you to our listeners. Um, we hope that you will join us next time for the Disaster Discussions podcast. And until then, uh, we hope you have a safe day and just yeah, keep a keep a weather eye on the horizon. Thanks for listening to the Disaster Discussions podcast, an IBHS production. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or watch the podcast on our website at ibhs.org/disasterdiscussionspodcast and the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety YouTube channel. Connect with us on our social media pages on Twitter at Disaster Safety, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Disaster Safety, and on Instagram at IBHS underscore org. For more great content from IBHS, including ongoing research efforts happening in our facility, episodes of our podcast, and more, visit IBHS.org.